uh, and it's on sexual immorality, sex, sexual purity. And so if, uh, as a parent, you think that that subject is, uh, you're trying to save that for a later date, uh, I just want you to feel the flexibility to be able to take your kids back into the uh, the kids' ministry for this morning, and um, and so it is not uh, weird for you to get up and take them back now if you so choose, uh, and would be a good week if you choose to do that. We've revamped our kids' curriculum across all three campuses, and uh, in the scope and sequence is, is that by the time your kid gets out of elementary school, uh, they will see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, and that is really excited. Uh, just my soul and my own spirit uh, in that we're not teaching your kids morality tales. We're not teaching them uh, be good, be like David, be better than you are. We're teaching them that Christ is the only one that's good. Uh, Look to Christ Jesus. And uh, that's what we need to hear uh, when we come together uh, every Sunday. And that's what our kids are hearing in the back. And so uh, just I wanted to commend that to you and, um, and plug that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we have spent some time already this morning singing uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have went through, uh, Pastor Randy prayed an old Puritan prayer from the 16th century just a moment ago out of the Valley of Vision that talked about the weightiness of our sin. Uh, Kevin came up and prayed uh, a prayer in regards to the, the destructive nature of sexual immorality and, uh, and that's what we're looking at this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the conclusion of our uh, will of God, uh, just this little short series that we've been doing over the, the course of the month of January, and, um, and I hope that it's been encouraging to you. And a couple of weeks ago, if you weren't with us, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon, but we spent some time in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and, and we saw that the Apostle Paul was writing to the church of Thessalonica and this church is a, is a relatively healthy church as far as local churches in the first century go. And uh, Paul and uh, Silas had went there. Acts chapter 17 documents it. They faithfully preached the gospel there, and people began to be converted. People began to, to confess that Jesus Christ is, in fact, risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is, in fact, king. And uh, when people began to make that profession, when the gospel captivates someone's heart, it changes them. It changes them. You can't remain the same as you are. And, uh, and the, the, uh, the uh, Thessalonica the, 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 uh, was, was a part of the Roman Empire. And, and in order to be a part of the Roman Empire, you're, you had to confess that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is king. And because uh, the, uh, this local church that... Um, the Apostle Paul and Silas had planted and began, uh, it began to threaten the way of life there. And so uh, the Thessalonica church began to experience various persecutions. And, and, uh, and they were, uh, uh, frankly, they were being charged with treason. They were being charged with confessing Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. And so Paul, concerned about this because he had to leave abruptly uh, after preaching the gospel, they had to actually sneak him out, he and Silas, because they were uh, scared for their lives. Paul is still concerned about this church body and the persecution that they're experiencing. And so he sends Timothy there uh, to go and to find out what's going on uh, and, uh, and to also encourage them to continue to persevere in this newfound faith. And Timothy comes back to Paul. He reports that they're remaining steadfast in their faith uh, amidst persecution, and, uh, and that's kind of what prompts this letter. Uh, Paul is encouraged by their faith, 
And, uh, and so he's, con- he's encouraging them to continue to persevere, but he's also warning them of some pitfalls in the local church. And this morning, what we're going to look at is the pitfall of sexual immorality. And so, like I said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 3 through 8, and that's where we're going to camp out at this morning, and we're just going to work our way through the text. Um, But the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this to the church of Thessalonica. He says this starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger. And all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, this is a... This is a weighty passage. It's weighty in the sense that, Lord, these these passions that are at war within us that James talks about, God, we do wrestle with this sin, not just in the broader culture, but in our local church context. And God, it hinders the vitality of our faith. It hinders our community with you. hinders our joy. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would use this, this scripture, to wash over us, to invigorate us in our fight against sin, to increase our hatred for sin, God. Because it's, the enemy is trying to use this particular sin to bring again that chasm. So help us, Lord, as we work through this text in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, and we have, um, uh, we have notes provided for you in, in, your, in your bulletin above your Connect card, uh, I would have you write this down. God's will for Christians is their sanctification. Right, again, this is a sermon series on the will of God, and, and so we come to this particular text, and and, uh, and Paul, without mincing any words whatsoever, he says, God's will for you is your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And again, this is this, I spent a few weeks ago talking about this, but this is a persecuted church, this church who, whose allegiance is to King Jesus, not to Caesar. And, 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 and Paul is writing them to encourage them in chapter 4. And we, we see him tell the, the church of Thessalonica very plainly, what God's will is. And, and if you're, you're jotting this down, we, we can define sanctification this way. Sanctification, it can be translated as, as, as simply holiness. God's people should be set apart because they are in Christ. God's people should be set apart because they're in Christ. And this being set apart, this, this, this type of growth in holiness, it's expected of God's people. It's assumed 
of God's people. And, and it doesn't happen apart from our own effort in the matter. This isn't, uh, this isn't something that we can be passive about. This isn't something we check out on and say, man, I'm justified and I don't, and I don't have any part to play in my sanctification. And sanctification, if we're reading the scripture rightly, and if we're, we're living in light uh, or in response to this great glorious gospel that God's freely given to us in Jesus Christ, sanctification really is a testament to our justification. It's a testament to our justification. We're not saved because we're being sanctified. We're being sanctified because we're saved. We're being sanctified because we, we are a people that are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I think we have this in, in uh, the, the pro presenter here, but the Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, for we, speaking of Christians here, speaking to the, the church of Ephesus here, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before the foundation of the earth, God ordained that we should walk in good works as Christians. And if you were to work through Ephesians chapter 1, some of what uh, Andrew Wilson last week when he came and taught, he kind of gave us a, a bird's eye view of the book of Ephesians, but you would see that, that God is sovereign over salvation, especially in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. And, 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 and that's, that's another way of saying that God ordains the salvation of his people, yet... The message of the gospel is everyone should repent and trust Jesus. It's the message of the gospel. And then here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the passage I just read, we see that God in Christ Jesus has prepared before the foundation of the world that we do good works, that we do holy works, that we be sanctified, yet we're called to effort in our sanctification, these dual truths that, that may in part seem in conflict, but they are uh, right in harmony with one another. Again, we're not, we're not called in this Christian life to passivity, not called to passivity. So, so how do we effort in our sanctification? And sanctification, and I don't have this in your notes, but I would encourage you to write it down, but sanctification happens through our habits, it happens through our habits. For me, this has been a big part of this sermon series on God's will. God's people, those that are in Christ Jesus, should have different thought patterns, should have different action patterns than those who don't know God. There should be a difference there, right? right? Through, through godly habits... Right? The, the Lord conforms us graciously, kindly conforms us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So a few godly habits to pursue, some, some rhythms to, to, um, to have in your life, and, and I'll beat this drum until I'm dead, but corporate worship is a habit. It is a habit. Singing, preaching, praying, the ordinances, those are God-ordained means of grace. When you engage in those things, God is supernaturally doing something to you, doing something to me that may not even be on our radar. 
When you come on the Lord's Day and you're distracted and you got all this stuff going on and you, you leave feeling like, man, I couldn't even apply my mind to the service. I don't know what the heck Joey was talking about this Sunday. God is still doing something to you. It's good for you to be here. And for me, I don't know if we buy into that because we're so, we're so quick to not be here. Like we're so quick to let other things entangle us from being, having this weekly rhythm of corporate worship. I heard a preacher say this week that the Lord knew that we couldn't go much past seven days without coming together as his body, as his bride, to be reminded of who we are in Christ Jesus. And so do we, do we see this day as the, the most important thing that you do as a Christian? And if you don't, if you don't feel that way, I would encourage you to learn it through habit. I call this eating your vegetables, right? It, it's time to eat your vegetables, right? We teach our kids to eat their vegetables. And for the most part, there's some freak kids out there that love vegetables right out of the gate. But for the most part, they're learning. They're being, they're, their palate is being adjusted to eat things that are good for them. And as Christians, we need to learn these spiritual habits we should be doing. We, we should acquire a taste for them. Even if we don't feel like doing it, we should acquire a taste for them knowing that our God who knows better than us says it's good for you. Eat this. Now we establish godly habits. That's, that's how we're sanctified, and it conforms us more to the image of Jesus Christ. But we also have those godly habits of abstinence that we should be engaged with, of omission that the Lord uses to conform us more to the image of Jesus. It's, it's for us, and, and one of the reasons why we've read certain passages of Scripture this morning, one of the reasons why Pastor Randy read that particular um, uh, Puritan prayer there is because we need to be mindful of those sins that we're susceptible to. And as we're mindful of those sins that we're susceptible to, we allow the light of the gospel to chase off the darkness of those particular sins. And in our text this morning, Paul's addressing a particular issue as it relates to sanctification, and that's sexual immorality. So let's define sexual immorality. We look at verses, the latter part of verse 3 on to verse 5 here. The sexual immorality that you abstain, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's not that sex is bad, and, and I want to spend some time putting this positively for us. It's not that sex is bad. Sex is a good gift from God. Sex is a good gift from God. Right? Paul's not dismissing sex as bad. Growing up, the Lord used the local church I was a part of in a magnificent way, but I was a part of a local church that put everything negatively. And so anytime we, we would talk about sex, my understanding as a kid growing up was that, man, that is a horrible, horrible thing. But you do it once you get married, even though it's horrible. Right? <laughs> That was kind of my perspective that was instilled in me. And so to struggle with that, right, to, to struggle with some form of sexual sin or sexual immorality, what that kind of breeds is this shame and this hiding that it, it begins uh, to, to um, 
cultivate a habit in you, if you will, to, to not be open, honest, vulnerable about your struggles as a believer. But the Bible doesn't teach that sex is bad. Sex is created by God, and sex is good. All right? and, the, and the Scripture speaks very positively of sex as invented by God. Genesis chapter 1, you guys know this, verses 27 to 28. Moses says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man and woman, both created in the image of God, are commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply. Now, this can have different meanings. We can, we can go off and talk about spiritual sons and daughters that we're to raise to know God and to love God. You're doing that when you evangelize people, right? You're being fruitful and multiply. We can talk about it as uh, adoption. We can talk about adopting children and raising them to know and love the Lord, to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But primarily speaking, the scripture here is saying that God designed it so that a benefit of sex between one man and one woman in the context of marriage would be children given to them so that they can show those children how to worship the Lord. So that they can say, kids, follow mommy and daddy. This is the way, this is what it means to be a part of our family. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. And we also see poetry, right? Song of Solomon. It's the last time you heard a sermon on the Song of Solomon. It's the last time you read Song of Solomon. It relates to God's good intent behind sex. A couple of passages here to make you uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 3 to 7, is an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. A couple of chapters later, Song of Solomon 4, your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. There's poetry here. There's, there's beauty here, right? There's, there's glory here, and it's holy. It's holy, right? Speaking thinking and acting this way in the context of marriage submitted to God is good. It's good and it's appropriate. J.I. Packer, he's a, a theologian and writer, he, he says this, he says, in the jungle of modern permissiveness, the meaning and purpose of sex is missed and its glory is lost. Our society urgently needs recalling to the noble and ennobling view of sex, which Scripture implied in the seventh commandment assumes, namely, that sex is fully 
and permanently committed relationships, which, by being the blend of affection, loyalty, and biology that they are, prepare us for and help us into that which is their archetype. The happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to God, men, and angels in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. Now, why are we, why are we prone to, to being an, perhaps embarrassed about me reading something so, so vivid or forward um, as the words of King Solomon or a, a quote of J.I. Packer's view regarding sex. I think it's, it's because we, we've been tempted and we've been led astray by that, that which the, the, the Apostle Paul warns the church of Thessalonica. We've been led astray by the passion of our lust, the passion of our lust. Our, perspe- our perspective on sex isn't a sanctified one. It's not a, a holy one. It's, it's a perverse one, and, and perverseness breeds shame. It breeds shame. That's the fruit of perverseness. When Adam and Eve were first created, the Scripture tells us that they were naked and not ashamed. And I'm saying naked, naked like a Georgian, naked, naked. Just read the text. Should have practiced this. Um, but, But we're corrupted on this issue of sex. We're corrupted on it. And Paul says that at the root of sexual immorality is this wicked desire that's within us, this capacity in every single one of us that is nurtured by society. Sexual immorality, if I were to just bottom line define it for you, sexual immorality is this. It's a low, cheap view of sex. It's a low, cheap view of sex of sex. It's sex without worshiping the Lord. It's sex without commitment. It's sex without Christ. It's a selfish, self-consumed, consumer-driven sex instead of a service-driven sex. It's a type of sex that asks, what can I get from this person, not what can I give to this person? And it begins in our heart. And, and this low, cheap view of sex, it's not new in our culture. This isn't something that we just began to deal with as a 21st century church. Paul here is writing to the 1st century church, but even before this local church is planted, centuries before the Apostle Paul is even born, um, there, there's a, a, a man by the name of uh, Demosthenes, who sa- he says this, Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. Since the fall, the unbelieving culture has been obsessed with this twisted, degrading view of sex and sexuality. And instead of standing apart in this particular area, Christians have willingly assimilated into the broader culture and have embraced this cheap view of sex. And I, and I see it primarily two ways in our local church. Primarily two ways. The first way I see it is, is we, we've been so desensitized and, and things that shouldn't be normal to us 
have become normal to us. And the fruit of that, if we need observable, um, uh, just evidence, we see there's a low view of marriage in our local church. Man, we could be quick to call out particular sexual sins that we're not struggling with. But man, you start talking about my own marriage or we start talking about the, the, the divorce rate in the context of, of the local church, then that, that's not something that, that we're, we're willing to, to move toward. We're not, we're not willing to, to lead through our own repentance of our own low view of marriage. When things get tough, we're prone to call it quits. Our consciences are no longer pricked to live together before marriage or live together without any intent whatsoever to wed. See it in a hidden addiction to pornography in the context of our local church. And and let me say, just as a sidebar, we have a very narrow definition of what we call pornography. There's a lot more that we could fit inside the the definition of pornography than what we're currently defining it as. Let me encourage you to have a very broad definition of pornography. Put as much crap in there as possible. Here's some stats for you. Let me give you some statistics. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. And the average visit lasts 6 minutes and 29 seconds. There are around 42 million porn websites, which totals around 370 million pages of porn. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. I don't know what those are. Um, It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States report that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate, get this, by more than 300%. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. 11, and 94% of children will see pornography by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that they have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the past 12 months. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. 59% of pastors say that married men seek their help for porn use. 33% of women age 25 and under search porn at least once a month. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they've never watched porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they watch porn at least once a month. 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation, 
and 69% say porn has adversely impacted the church. And then get this, only 7% of pastors say their church has a program to help people struggling with pornography. Shame on us. Shame on us. And what satisfies initially with pornography doesn't continue to satisfy, right? What satisfies today doesn't satisfy tomorrow. It has to become more twisted. It has to become more depraved. And it it makes us dull. It makes us illogical. It leads us down a path that we never dreamed in a million years we would go down. No one stands at the altar and looks their spouse in the eye and says, I do, with the intent of having their lives consumed by pornography. When you fall, you don't fall far, right? When we stumble, it's not because we were following the Lord and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, our lives are in shambles due to sexual hidden sin. It's one nibble at a time, right? It's this hidden sin, this hidden sin, this addiction that leads us down a path that's really difficult to backtrack from. Since 1998, the use of Viagra skyrocketed with men between the ages of 18 to 45 by 312%. And it skyrocketed 216% for men between the ages of 46 and 55. The commercials would have you believe that it's for an older couple in a committed relationship when in reality the consumers primarily are those men that are addicted to pornography so much that they can't get turned on by their own wives. I give you these statistics to demonstrate that this isn't a private sin. It's not a private sin. It's a soul-destroying sin. Sexual immorality has an impact on the way that you view God It has an impact on the way that you view other people, and it has an impact on the way that you view yourself. So how can the church turn the corner? I'm going to give you two ways that that we can begin to turn the corner, and I'm going to even conclude with some action steps for you specifically that may be struggling this morning. We turn the corner through repentance. First, we need to repent corporately as a church. We need to repent corporately as a church. We need to repent also as individuals. The church should repent corporately for not speaking enough about sex. We're notorious for, the church is notorious for leaving vacuums, and vacuums are always going to be filled by someone else. We have to repent of our low view of marriage as a local church. We have to repent for our lack of commitment to God that that is demonstrated by our own lack of commitment to our spouse. We've got to repent of the ways that we've been desensitized and the ways that we've allowed ourselves to have sexual things from pornography to the shows and the movies that we watch to our crude and coarse joking. We need to repent of the ways that we've normalized sexual immorality so that we can be to carve a way out of that sin. We've got to repent of replacing one man, good one man, one woman sex in the context of marriage with, with cheap and abusive 
views of sex. And, and this isn't even a part of my sermon, but I can spend an entire, an entire sermon talking about the hypocrisy of a culture that wants to rescue women out of sex trafficking while secretly watching women being sex trafficked on their screen in their bedroom. The lights are out and no one's watching. It's sex trafficking. Second way we turn the corners, we got to be a safe place for people to wrestle and repent of sin. We, we have to be a church where people feel they can confess sin and find help. And we have a recovery class. And I'm going to mention this in a minute, but we have a recovery class called The Heart of Addiction. And it addresses various addictions, one of those addictions being addiction to sexual sin. And these men that get together, there's a class for men, there's a class for women, it's a confidential class, and we would love to put resources in your hands that get to the heart of the matter, because it, it's not just changing outward behavior, it's changing our heart posture before the Lord. Next here, verse 6, I want us to see this, that God's an advocate of victims. God is an advocate of victims. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Right? Those of you sitting in this congregation right now maybe have experienced some sort of sexual abuse. Right? Sexually abused by somebody close to you. Raped. Or treated like some object to, to be used and thrown away and and. For some of you, this happened by men and women who claim to be Christians. And, and this abuse has had such a ripple effect on your life that it's become a root cause for depression. It's become a root cause for anxiety, both in your dreams and in your wake time. And, and maybe it's led you toward, a, toward addictions on your own. I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul this morning. The Lord is an avenger in these things. He's an avenger in these things. This, this doesn't slip past God. There's going to be an accounting for heinous crimes that have been committed against you. And Paul warned those in the church of Thessalonica that God sees and that he's an advocate for victims. What the word avenger means, actually, advocate. And, and let me encourage you this morning. The enemy, he, he, he wants to, to take your suffering and make you withdraw from community. He wants to take your suffering and put you in a place where you can't be known by people. The enemy wants you to see everybody that you come across as a threat. And the enemy wants you to numb yourself with drugs and with alcohol and with your own sexual immorality. Let me encourage you, don't retreat from the Lord. Don't retreat from the Lord. Run to him. Be known in this community of believers. Even though it goes against every fiber of your body, be known in the context of this local church. Trust in the context of this local church again. Speak to one of our counselors at Coastal. Reach out. Take the risk. It's worth taking. Four, sexual impurity is a disregarding of God. Verses seven to eight, for God's not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, 
but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Yes, sexual immorality is a sin against our brothers and sisters, and it's a heinous sin against our brothers and sisters, 100%. But even before that, it's a sin against the God of the universe, this holy God who created sex as a good and worshipful gift. David here, Psalm 51.4, against is it confesses a sin to the Lord against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you know the context of that passage, King David, a man after God's own heart, as the scriptures call him, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only that, but he put her husband on the front line in the fiercest part of the battle so that he wouldn't make it back. So we have uh, a murderous intent and we have an adulterous heart. There's people that he's wrong. He's wrong Bathsheba. He's wrong King Uriah. He's wrong this nation that he's called to rule righteously. But first and foremost, his way out, his way out in regards to repenting, fleeing towards God is to see that primarily his sin is a sin against God. It's a sin against God. Finally, I want to end on a hopeful note. We need to follow an old road. We need to proclaim the gospel through marriage. We need to proclaim the gospel through marriage. Man, what kind of impact could we have on a culture if we just simply modeled the gospel in the husband and wife relationship? Right? Just simply modeled it. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read this to you, verses 22 to 33. Again, we've had, we have in the beginning part of Ephesians the indicatives, what God in Christ has done for us, and now in the latter part, the Apostle Paul gets to how do we live in light of what God in Christ has done for us. And he has, uh, he has uh, personal application for husbands and wives. He says in verse 22, Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, or no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let me read that again. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God loves using pictures to remind us of the gospel. He he preaches the gospel to us as we, we, again, we come on, on the Lord's day and as we worship him, he preaches the gospel to us in picture form as we observe the Lord's Supper. He preaches the gospel to us in picture form as we profess our faith publicly in baptism, that we're, which we're going to do in a few weeks. And he preaches the gospel to us in our marriages as well. 
And, and I want to press into the men this morning. And I want to say this. The, the, the way that you lead your home, the way that you practically in the everyday routine of life lead your home communicates to your wife what you believe about Jesus. Practically speaking, it communicates to your wife what you believe about Jesus. And the Bible says that you're the head of the home, and that's not a title that you can forsake. It's not, it's not man, Joey's really, uh, he's just not ahead of his home. That's, that's not accurate. It's that Joey's not a good head of his home. That would be more accurate. Every single man in this room, every single man, Christian or non-Christian, is going to stand before God and give an account as the head of his home. Every single man. And we need to give an account that, that says, man, I was as sinful as can be, but I pressed into my sinless Savior. In those times I sinned, I confessed those sins to my wife, I confessed those sins to my kids, and I reminded them, this is why I need Jesus. Jesus presented his bride, according to Ephesians, his bride, the church, without spot or wrinkle. He presented his bride as holy and without blemish. So nurturing. So patient. Such a, a, a commitment to die to self. Right? Men, if we committed to modeling this type of relationship, not only would the gospel be clear to our wives and our children, but our testimony of the gospel would be, would be extremely clear to an onlooking world. They would actually begin to believe us when we open our mouths and talk about marriage. Who would have thunk? Maybe it's not so much the hardness of the hearts of the onlooking world, the unbelieving world, although they are deceived by sin, but maybe it's because they look at us and say, I don't believe you. I hear those words, but I don't believe you. If we want to change the culture and rid it of sexual immorality, it starts with the repentance of men in a marital relationship. That's where it starts. Men, we have to proclaim the gospel in our marriage. We have to proclaim the gospel in our marriage even when you don't get an attaboy. We have to present our wives sanctified to the Lord by our God-centered loving and serving and cherishing and nurturing of them. And let me close this down, and, and I want to give, give some practical application here. First is this. If you call yourself a Christian, and you're demonstrating a low view of marriage by going through a divorce, and, and I get that there's, some, there's certain cases where divorce is permissible, but most of us are not in that situation. But if you, you're demonstrating a low view of marriage by going through a divorce or living with someone or being noncommittal, I want to call you from the pulpit and say, repent. Right? Commit to Christ by committing yourself to your spouse. Commit to Christ by either breaking up with that someone you're living with or by marrying them before God. If you call yourself a Christian and you're addicted to pornography, you can be free of that addiction. You really can be free of that addiction. And we would like you to join our Heart of Addiction class. And like I said, it's a, it's a confidential class that meets every single week. And you can sign up by filling out the Connect card. You can sign up um, by speaking to myself or Pastor Randy. And like I said, it's a confidential class. What's said in that class stays in that class. 
but um, you will find like-minded brothers. It's We have, a, again, a male class and we have a female class, and you will find some people that are there um, to help you navigate addiction. If you've been sexually abused and you're living isolated, I want to encourage you to reach out. We have men and women counselors that would love to connect with you, and, and you can reach out to us confidentially through the Connect card or by emailing us, biblicalcounseling at gocoastal.org, biblicalcounseling at gocoastal.org. And then finally, if you're a husband, lead your wife. Lead your wife through your own worship of the Lord. And if you want handles on how that looks practically, reach out to us as well. All right, we got men who, who, who would love to mentor you. And so I think there's ways that all of us in some sense could respond to this. Um, and my prayer is that we do. My prayer is that our marriages, our sex lives would, would preach the oneness that Christ has and enjoys with his bride, the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, God, I confess we fall so short of your standard in every area, God, but specifically this area this morning, God, this, this plagues local churches everywhere and our church isn't immune to it. And so, God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would see that your design for sex is between one man and one woman in a permanent marriage is truly good for us. And it's good for us because it reminds us in picture form of Christ's commitment to his bride. So, Lord, help us to lead through our repentance. Help us to be bold enough, God, to taste and see that you're good. And we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.